This morning, we're going to be taking a look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be able to cover the whole chapter, and we're going to hear the author tell about and describe a rest that is available to us. Anybody need any extra rest? Uh, Yeah, we all need a little bit of rest, right? There's a rest that's available in Jesus Christ, and we're going to hear about that this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we begin. Father, we know that the weather outside is predicted to be bad, but we also know that we need to be here to study your word. We thank you that we're able to gather in this place and open up your scriptures together, that we have the freedom to do that. We thank you for the many that can join us online as well, for that aren't able to come out. So Lord, I just ask this morning as we open up your word, would you be willing to minister to our hearts? Just meet us where we're at. May we study your rest. Lord, if we don't have that, may we enter into it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 3, the author of Hebrews told us Jesus, the Son of God, was faithful, and he is faithful. He became the high priest over our confession, and the author went on to instruct the reader, that was them and us, the believer in Jesus Christ, that we should also be faithful. He encouraged us to hold fast to the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember, the initial recipients of this letter were Jewish believers who were considering giving up their faith in Jesus Christ and turning back to their Jewish religion, to Judaism. Why would they do such a thing? Because that was the dominant religion of their culture. That's what everybody else was doing. It seemed different for them to be following Christ. Persecution was on the rise. It had cost them many relationships, families, even businesses. And they were considering giving up what they had in Jesus Christ and just going back to the law and the old way of doing these things. Since Judaism was built on Moses, the author makes the point that Christianity is built on Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was more faithful than Moses. The faithfulness of Christ was a perfect faithfulness. Then the author encouraged the readers to hold their faith in Christ to the very end. Continue on, hold fast. Remember last week we talked about set that course and stay on it going in that direction. Don't deviate to the left or don't deviate to the right. He encouraged them not to harden their hearts towards the things of God. And to illustrate his point, he referred back to their forefathers, that group of Jewish people who were set free from the bondage of Egypt, who wandered in the desert. Let me just remind you of that. After the plagues, after the first Passover, many of the Jews left Egypt. They crossed over the Red Sea. They spent about two years in the desert. And during those two years, during that time, they were led by a pillar pillar of fire by night, by a cloud by day. They were given the law, the tabernacle. They saw water come from the rock, and they were given a command to enter into the promised land. There they are. They've been in the desert about two years. They're on the edge of the promised land. They decide we're going to send in 10 spies. So they did. They sent 10 spies into the land to spy it out, see what it's like, come back and give us a report. The spies were gone for 40 days. And when they brought back, when they came back, they brought back fruit from the land. They declared the land is flowing with milk and honey. But the people, they said, there's people in the land and they're big people. They're, they're strong people, and there's cities in the land, and they're strong cities. I don't know. Wait, they're even fortified cities. I don't know if we can take that land. I don't know if we have it in us. But Caleb and Joshua, specifically Caleb, one of the spies, he said, come on, let's go. God is with us. He's given it to us. Let's go take it. Let's go get the land. The Lord has given it to us. But the other spies, the other eight, they said, we can't do that. It's too big. It's too dangerous. We can't possibly do it. They're too big. In fact, the scripture says, they they said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They would just squish us. 
They would just step on us. Caleb was looking at the power of the Lord. He knew who God was. He was looking towards the word of the Lord. But they, the other eight, were looking towards their own strength, their own ability. So there on the border of the promised land, Israel refused to enter in. Instead, they decided we can't do it. We can't make it. We can't, we can't do it. We don't understand how it could happen. So they refused to follow God's command to go into the land. As a result, the Lord became angry with them for their disobedience. He promised that other than Joshua and Caleb, those were the two spies that came out of the land that said they should go in. Other than those two, not a single one of them who left Egypt would enter into the promised land. So for the next 38 or so years, every single person, every single adult who was with them when they left Egypt would wander in the desert until that whole generation died in the desert. You see, they heard the word of the Lord, but because of their lack of faith and because of their focus on their circumstance, that's what's going on right in front of them, they lost sight of the power of God. They didn't realize that God's power was in play. All they were doing was going, well, I don't understand this. Doesn't, why is my life like this? Why, why, why? They should just be waving the, red flag, the white flag right now to give up. I don't, I, I, we can't do this. They missed entering the promise of the Lord. They failed to enter into the rest the Lord had given them. They heard the word of the Lord, but because of their lack of faith and because of the focus on their circumstances, they missed what God had for them. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That should take you to your life and go, does God have something more for me? Am I miss, is, is, there a, is there a lack of faith in my life or in God's word that is causing me to miss out on something that God has for me? You see, the author of Hebrews, he doesn't want his readers to have those same doubts. He doesn't want them to have that unbelief or that lack of faith. This morning, as we pick up in chapter 4, we're going to see as he talks to them about entering into the Lord's rest. I'm going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 16, just for context, but we'll be looking at chapter 4 this morning. Follow along with me. For who, having heard, rebelled, this is the Israelites in the desert, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? It was. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness. Yes, it was, verse 18. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So when we see they could not enter in because of unbelief, chapter four, verse one, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Although they did not enter the rest of God, they failed to go into the promised land, there's still a rest that's available. That's what the author's telling us. There's still a rest available to the readers of the letter. It's not in a land, it's in the Messiah. There's a rest that's available in Jesus Christ. That's what they were thinking about giving up when they were going back to Judaism. I don't want the things of Jesus. It's too hard. It's too complicated. He's going to say continue because if you will walk in obedience, there's a rest that's available to you that is no, available nowhere else. The basic idea of rest is that of ceasing from work or from any kind of action. That sounds kind of appealing, doesn't it? I can just sit and rest. Cease from work. No more action. How long do you want to do it? As long as I can. Well, that's in our everyday life. When you apply, God's, to apply this concept, this idea to God's rest, it means no more self-effort as far as salvation goes. 
It means the tr- no more. it's the end of trying to please God. Our feeble, fleshly works, God's perfect rest is free. It's, I don't have to earn it. I don't have to behave a certain way. When I misbehave, I don't lose it. It's I get to rest in who I am in Jesus Christ. And to enter God's rest, it means to enjoy the perfect, unshakable confidence of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have no more reason to fear. We have absolute trust and confidence in God's power and care. That's easy for us to say, but when life gets difficult, it can be hard, can it? When the, when the odds are stacked against you, when the, when, when the illness happens, when the problem happens, when the work job happens, whatever it happens, you go, I need rest. You're going to find it in Jesus Christ. You'll not find it in your circumstance. In Christ, there is a rest, and it cannot come from anywhere else. Do you know that as Americans, we are spending billions of dollars trying to rest, trying to get rid of stress? Sometime for fun, just Google it. How to get rid of stress, and look at the crazy things that come up. You can stay, if you can't sleep at night, turn on the TV, you're going to see infomercials for what? More comfortable beds, more comfortable pillows. You got the one you can blow up. You got the one that's like the astronaut bed. You got this pillow. You got that pillow. And then you'll find rest. You can buy every one of the beds out there, but you're not going to find the rest you need. Because even if you don't sleep, if your faith, if you're grounded in Jesus Christ, you'll have the rest of being in him. You'll see that rest is not a matter of my eyes being closed. It's a matter of where I'm abiding, where my focus is at. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give it to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Wow. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rob, I need rest. I'm stressed out. I need rest. You're going to find that rest in Jesus Christ. You won't find it in a comfortable bed or a comfortable pillow, but you will find rest for your souls in Jesus Christ. He said, come to me and I will give it to you. It's there. But there's a warning. He said, let us fear. In other words, we should be fearful that we may come or we may fall short of that rest. It's possible to go through this life and the Lord say, I have rest for you. And you go, well, I'm a believer in you, Jesus, but, but I, I fell short of that rest. I don't get that rest. Those that failed to enter the promised land missed out on the tremendous blessing of watching God do what only God can do in a miraculous way as he was giving that land to them. Why? Because of their unbelief. God can't do that. God, God couldn't do that with me. We're not, we're not skilled warriors. We don't have the weapons. We don't have the, we don't have the things that it takes to... No. He can do that. He's God. As long as the problem remains... People need rest. There's an opportunity to be saved and enter into God's rest. So this morning, if you're bound up going, I need rest, you can enter into it. It's available to you. But be aware that you could also be falling short of it. Look what he says. Or let me ask you this question. What causes us to come short? Rob, if I'm falling short, how, what, what's causing that? Why would we fail to enter into the rest of the Lord? Why would we not have what he has for us? He tells you there in verse 2. Look what it says. He says, for indeed, the gospel, that's the word of God, the gospel, the good news, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Same message, two people hearing, one they didn't hear it, it didn't profit them. Why? 
because not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Two groups of people both heard God's word. One had faith, one didn't. Hearing of God's word is not enough. Ancient Israel heard God's word, but their lack of faith in God's word led to their disobedience of God's word. There they stood on the promised land. Go, go take it. They heard it, but you know what? They didn't believe it. They didn't have faith in it, which led to their disobedience of it. God says, go. No, I, no, I don't see how that. He, th- how are we going to overcome those giants and those fortified cities? How, how's that going to Only if they could have got a glimpse of how, what it would look like when they took Jericho and the walls just fell down of the fortified Perhaps they were looking at Jericho. Look at those walls. How are we going to take that? Not knowing the next generation would just walk around the city seven times and the walls would fall down. It was God was doing the work. It wasn't their abilities. It was in God's ability. When you hear God's word, when you read God's word, it must be in faith. It has to be in faith if you want it to have a result. Otherwise, it does no good to you. It's just words going in one ear and out the other. This is why two people can sit in a Bible study and hear, and one says, wow, I heard from the Lord today. He spoke to me. The other one goes, I didn't hear anything. How do you get that out of there? One has faith in what the word of God says, not what the pastor says. One has faith in what God's word says, and the other, they, there's no faith there. They don't really, it's just, it's just a book. It's just, it's, it's no different than any other book that they would, they would read. In order for God's word to work in your life, you must have faith in it. Let me give you an example. In God's word, it'll tell us that as believers, our old man is dead. It'll tell us that we're set free from sin. But if you don't believe that you're set free from sin, you will forever struggle with sin. You have to go, well, no, this is what people do. They go, well, the Bible says I'm set free from sin, but I'm not experiencing that, so it must not be true. Instead, if they would say, I believe that, they might experience that. They would experience that. Instead, they take a look at what God's word says, and they go, well, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it really means I'm set free from sin. Listen, if the gospel doesn't have the power to set you free, what power does it have? The gospel is powerful. In order for God's work, word to work, you must have, in your life, you have to have faith in it. If God's word says, hey, don't do this. This is sin. Stay away from this. And you go, well, I think I'll be okay with just this one. Uh, this, this, this little thing in my life is okay. God understands. We have an agreement. No, you don't. What it means is you don't really believe what he says in his word. It means you don't really believe by withstanding or stopping doing that thing that, you're, that he's telling you to do. You don't really believe that it's better for you if you stop it. You think, well, I, I, this is how I cope. This is what gets me by. This is, this is how I deal with life. This is just, he understands me. Truth is, he does understand you, but he still knows what's best for you. Our failure, our disobedience to God's word is directly tied to our faith in God's word. That's what the author is trying to t- teach us here. What happens if we do believe God's word? Look at verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. And he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, speaking of God's sovereignty there. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, 
Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, that's for us, by the way, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. I mean, that, what, when Joshua went into the promised land, that's not just it. Verse 9, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, that's a big section. It gets kind of confusing, but let me make it real simple for you. Although although Joshua led the people into the promised land, God still promised a rest to come. In other words, the rest in the Messiah is what was promised ahead. And they were after, this was coming after they were in the promised land. There's a promise given of rest. Rest, relaxation, real rest. It's not in the Sabbath day rest. It's not the promised land rest. It's not the creation rest. It's not the land of Canaan rest. It is the rest in Jesus Christ. That's what the author is trying to convince them. This is a rest that occurs when you give up trying to earn your salvation. You give up trying to earn your blessings. In other words, God, I did this for you. Have you ever made the mistake of... God, I, I went to church four times last month. Why is this bad thing happening? God, I, I read the Bible every day this week. I don't understand. I read the Bible this morning, and yet my day has gotten really bad, God. That, that's, that's you trying to earn favor from him. I did something, and now you need to reward me in, in what I've done. And, and God, I've done this thing for you. Truth is, you've got the wrong perspective of God. He's done everything for you, and he knows what's best for us. When you realize it's not through your works or by your energy, it's not because of your righteousness or due to your prayer life or any other spiritual thing, true rest occurs when, you're, when you realize, when the light bulb goes off, that your salvation does not depend on you. It's not on what you did. It's not on what you don't do. Rather, it's on who he is and what he's done. Then, when that sinks in, then... You can rest in Jesus Christ. Until that time, you will, all, you will forever be struggling with, did I do enough? Does God, God's mad at me. God doesn't like me. I blew it this week. You'll always be going back and forth going, I, I, I need to do better. I need, and you will never enter into that rest that goes, I can never do it. It's him who does the work in me. I need to rest in that fact that my salvation is in him. If you realize that, if you're here this morning, you're going, yeah, that's right. I know that I can't do it. There's nothing better than realizing. The rest occurs when you stop struggling, when you stop kicking against the goads like the Apostle Paul was told, when you simply surrender and turn your life over to Christ. It's his way. Lord, I'm yours. As messed up as my life is, here it is. You do with it what you want. When I realize he's the one that went to the cross, because sometimes we even go like this, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm pretty good. I got a good job, makes a decent living, take care of my family. I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not like those people over there. The truth is we're all sinners. We all fall short. Their sin might be magnified more. Yours might be hidden in your heart more. But we all need a Savior. And until you come to that place where you realize realize I can't earn my salvation, it doesn't matter how good I am, that's when you realize I'm going to rest in what Christ has done for me. It's not me. With this rest available, why would the readers of this letter ever want to go back to Judaism? That's the point the author's making. Why would you ever want to go back to what's available? Why would you want to go back to the law, back to the sacrifices, back to the struggle? Why would you want to go back to that? 
I guess the question for us is, why would we look anywhere else for rest? Where, where are we looking for our rest? Where are you trying to find peace in your life? Where are you trying to get some relaxation in your life? You can try a hobby. You know what I find out if I try a hobby that's not from the Lord? Life just gets more complicated. The hobby becomes a burden. The hobby becomes a problem. Then I've got well, to go do my hobby. But if I realize it's, my rest comes from the Lord, it's not a problem anymore. I can enjoy the hobby. Or I can enjoy whatever he's given me to enjoy. With rest available, why would we look anywhere else other than Jesus Christ? Yet we're so easily pulled in so many directions and we believe the lie that says, if I had this, if I could do that, if this would take place, then I would be at rest. And the truth is, no, you won't. Because that rest will only be found in Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 11. So what do we do? Verse 11, let us therefore. In other words, since I've presented this doctrinal truth to you, since I've shared it with you, since I've told you where to find rest, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The rest is there. God doesn't force it upon us. I wish he would sometimes, don't you? I wish he would just tell me, just make me go down this road. Make me realize. Make me get my perspective right. Just make me understand. Because No, no, I'm not going to force it upon you. You must enter that rest. How do we enter? We enter the rest by faith. But it's a diligent faith. It's a faith that continues. It's not a one-time faith. It's not a passive faith. We must diligently trust in him. How many times have you turned something over to him at night and only woke up in the morning to be struggling with the very same thing? Well, I had faith last night, but this morning it seems to be gone. It's a diligent faith. You have to turn it back over to him. You have to sit back in him. Let, let him do what, let God do what only God can do. We enter this by faith, but it's got to be diligent. If we're not diligent, if you're just passive about entering his rest, like the children of Israel, you may spend years wandering in the wilderness, in dryness, and drought. To me, those 38 years that they spent in that wilderness after they refused to go into the promised land, that would be absolutely miserable. They still got to see God work. They still saw amazing things. But to think, I missed out on what God has for me. That should be terrifying. Never blessed. Dryness and drought. Because we're always trying to work out our salvation with our own energy. We're trying to solve our own problems. Direct our own lives. Never at peace with what's happening. You see, part of, me, part of being at rest is, God, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. I just trust that you're doing it for a reason. So not questioning, not, not pointing, God, why is this happening to me? Lord, I don't know why. And I don't even like what's happening to me, but I, I know who you are. And I know that you love me. And I know that if this is taking place in my life, that you're doing something through that. So whatever that is, Lord, I need to enter into your rest. My faith has to be in what he's doing, not on the circumstances that are unfolding around me. When you look at the circumstances, you drift, you get confused. It pulls you away from the Lord. But when you look at him, the circumstances look so small. They look so manageable. But when you get your eyes off the Lord, the circumstances become huge and unmanageable. They become a huge burden. Remember, the key to entering his rest is hearing the word of God in faith. I hear the word of God. I believe the word of God. I live out the word of God. Then I can enter into the rest the Lord has provided for me. Look at verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Have you ever sat through a Bible study? Perhaps maybe it's you sitting here this morning and you thought, how does the, he's talking to me. How does he know what's going on in my life? Who told him? Somebody must have told him what's going on and he crafted this entire message so that he could speak to me. The truth is the pastor doesn't know, but God does. The word of God does. God will speak his word into your life at just the right time. When God's word is taught, he just told us it's living and powerful. God, the pastor has no idea what's going on in your life, in many cases, but God does. And when you show up in church on a particular Sunday and God's word pierces your heart, you can bet that it was planned that way, not by the pastor, but by the Holy Spirit. God's word is taught, it's living and powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's almost like it performs surgery on us. Have you had that happen? Maybe you've had a spiritual spanking or a spiritual surgery take place. It opens us up. It accurately discerns our spiritual condition. Because when we can think we're doing great, and then we get into God's word and we realize, ooh, I'm falling short there. Oh, that's not right. That's the wrong attitude. That's the wrong heart. It exposes our weakness. It displays our unbelief, and it clearly defines our disobedience. You want to know where you're living and you want to know where you're living in disobedience? Read God's word because he's going to show it to you. It's amazing how it happens. You think many times in my life I thought, "Well, I kind of got it all together." Sit down for morning devotion, open my Bible and go, "Whoa. Lord, forgive me. I'm far away from you. I I, I thought I had I I took care of that thing that you pointed out last decade. What's in it for this week?" You know, and then he shows you and he goes, "This is where I want you to work now. This is what's going on in your heart." I didn't even see that, Lord. He goes, "I know I did, but I'm I'm making you more like me, so you just keep working there." Let my word open you up. God's word will penetrate and expose your inner man, but you have to have the faith to let it do it. If you don't, it's just words on a page. It means nothing to you. The truth is you cannot sit in a Bible teaching very church very long without changing. God's word will change you. If it doesn't change you, you know what will happen? You'll leave. You'll get tired of hearing it. You'll move on. It's either going to change you, it's going to convict you, it's going to encourage you, it's going to uplift you, you're going to get what you need from life out of it, or you're going to go, this is dumb, this is boring. Why? Why would somebody come to that conclusion? Because there's no faith in it. They don't really believe it's God's word. But to those who want to know the truth, those who are truly seeking the truth, to those who want to change, it's in his word where the Lord will meet you. Not in my words. He promises that his word will not return, return void and it will accomplish what it sets out to do in his heart. He, ma he makes no such promises about my commentary of his word. His word is that powerful. That's why we teach it the way that we do. People say, why do you go through whole books and whole chapters and some chapters are boring. It might be boring for you, but someone over there, might, that might be their life that they need for this, to hold on to this week. God's word is powerful. It's living. Sometimes people come up to me and they'll say, you know, when I hear you teach, and it's a compliment, they say you make the Bible come alive. I don't make the Bible come alive, it's already alive. 
You're just going through the Bible systematically and the Holy Spirit's ministering to you. You're taking that in faith and things are happening in your life and you're giving me credit for it. Don't give me credit for it. Give him credit for it. Yeah, but the way that you say it, that's fine, but he, this word is already alive. Anybody teaching God's word is going to have the same results of people's lives changing or leaving, one of the two. It just works that way. If there's an area in your life where you're disobedient to God's word, do you realize that that disobedience is a direct result of your lack of faith in the word of God? Let me say it again. If there's an area where you're, you're struggling in disobedience, you know God's word says one thing, but you keep doing the opposite, that the reason you're doing the opposite is because you don't really believe it's true. You don't really believe that it's going to happen. You don't really believe that God has your best interest at heart. You think, no, no, this is my thing. This is the way I deal with it. You don't really believe God's word is correct and true. Or you have come to the idea, it's not what's best for me. My way is a little better. Or you've, the consequences, well, I'm, I'm going to roll the dice. The consequences won't come. Oh, yes, they will. When we come to the place where we re realize that God's word is true and God's word is what's best for us, I'm not saying we'll be perfect, but there should be a desire in your heart to line up with God's word. And when your not, life is not lined up with God's word, there should be a conviction that says you need to get lined up with God's word. If you can continue in sin without conviction, then there's no faith behind that in God's word. You're just living like, okay, whatever. Faith in God's word will always be followed by obedience to God's word. Think about it. Faith in God's word will always prove obedience. I'm not talking about faith. It's one thing to say I have faith in God's word. How do you know if somebody really has faith? Because they're obeying it. Let me give you an example. If I had a chair up here on the stage and it was an old rickety chair, looked like it was barely hanging together, and I said, I, I have faith that chair will hold me. How do you know I really have faith that chair will hold me? When I sit in it, if I just stand here and look, oh, there's faith, I have faith in that chair, and you're looking at him going, he's not going to sit in that chair. He looks like he weighs a lot more than that chair can hold. You're not letting that go. I, I, I want to I see that is what you're thinking. I'd like to see that because your faith goes, that chair won't hold me. But if I walk over and sit down in that chair, I just demonstrated my faith to you. You see, that's what our faith is an expression with our mouth, but also an expression with our actions. And that's how you tell where your faith is really at. Faith in God's word will always be followed by obedience to God's word. And as much as we don't want to admit it, when we're disobedient, it's because we don't think we'll get caught. We don't think God will see it. We don't think it'll matter. We'll just, ah, it'll be okay. We've become tolerant of ourselves and go, ah, it's not a big deal. I, I got, we got an arrangement with the man upstairs. No, you don't. The only arrangement you have with the man upstairs is clearly outlined in his word. He didn't make a special exception for you. It's here in his word that he, that he tells us how to meet him and how we should live our lives. I want you to notice it says the word of God is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. A discerner of thoughts. That means God's word can determine your true intentions. Sometimes people, nobody here, other places, other churches, they want to be spiritual. So they'll put on this outward perception of, look how holy I am. Outwardly, you might look and go, wow, they're a spiritual person. They're really holy. But their intention is just to impress you. You see, God's word can determine what those intentions are. Because it discerns the thoughts and intentions of mankind, it's not only saving and comforting and nourishing and healing, but because it knows that intentions, it can also be used as a tool of judgment and execution. 
means either you're for it or you're against it. You're living it or you're not living it. Many times our actions say one thing and our mouths say something completely different. The word of God will discern the true why behind what we do. Why is it that you do what you do? Sometimes people want to put out a certain perception about who they are, but it's not really who they are. Is Facebook accurate at depicting people's lives? No. What What gets put on Facebook? Only the things that we want you to see. Everything else that we don't want you to see, we keep that all aside. That's all, that's all hidden away. I only put the outward sign. You see, God's word says, I can see the outward. I can see what you put on Facebook, and I can see what's deep in your heart. I can see what keeps you awake at night. I can see what you're crying about. I can see what's worrying you. I see all those things that are deep in your heart, and my word will expose those things if you'll let it. It not only analyzes the facts perfectly, but it looks at all your motives, your intentions, and it'll even challenge all your beliefs. The sword of his word will make no mistakes in judgment or execution. All disguises will be ripped off and only the real person will be left on display. You go, Rob, that's kind of scary. I don't don't know if I want the word of God to do that to me. I don't know if I want to be pierced to the heart. I don't know if I want to be opened up by the word of God. Can I tell you there's nothing greater? I didn't say there was nothing, I didn't say it didn't hurt. I didn't say it was easy. But as, God word, as God's word opens up your heart and opens up your life and looks in and says, we're gonna work on something here. He might take you back to the past. He might teach you about forgiveness. He might tell you, walk through a difficult illness with you. Whatever it is, there's nothing greater than having God's word opening up your heart because once he does and he deals with that thing, it brings you back stronger. He's preparing you for eternity with him. Life does not end when, this, when you take your last breath here because I'm getting you ready for something. You're, you're in training, you're in preparation, and my word is going to open up some things. Don't close it off because you think it'll be hard. He says, let me do that surgery on you. Let me cut out those things. Let me replace those things that need to be replaced. Let's get past them together so that we can move on in eternity forever. And if you think this doesn't apply to you, look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Open. All things are naked and open. Naked is bare, open. I got to looking at that word. I thought, what does that word really mean, open? What does it mean it's open? There's got to be something there. As I began to study that word, I realized that word was used in two different situations in ancient times. The first place that it was used, it was a wrestling move. Speaking of one wrestler standing face to face with another wrestler, having the one by the th- one having the other by the throat. Literally, his life is in his hands. They're looking at each other. They're face to face. They're they're confronting one another. It, 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 the, the fight is on, so to speak. We're right there. The other use was in regard to a criminal trial. I thought this was kind of interesting. What is, how does it work with a criminal trial? What they would do is a sharp dagger would be bound to the neck of the accused. So it would be like this way with the, with the point facing up. Why? So the accused couldn't look down. He had to face his accuser and he had to face the court. If he looked down, he would be taking his own life. It was forcing him to come face to face with his judge. When an unbeliever comes under the scrutiny of God's word, he will be unavoidably face-to-face with the perfect truth about God. When we, as believers, look into God's word, we are face, you become face-to-face with God's truth. You can reject it, or you can live it, and you can learn from it, and you can grow from it. You will not be able, you can't look away from it. It'll be the very thing that we're judged by. In light of such a perfect judgment, 
and such a beautiful and wonderful rest that's offered to us. Face to face with him. We can learn about our creator. Why would anybody ever harden their heart to the word of God? Why would they not want that? I don't know. I can't answer that. I would only surmise that it's because sin has taken hold and they're not willing to change or allow God to change them. Look at verse 14 as we see the high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 3, Christ Jesus was called the apostle and high priest of our confession. When we studied that, I told you that Christianity is based on a confession. It's a confession with your mouth, but it's also a confession with your life. The way that you live just validates what you say with your mouth. Now the author again reminds us of this high priest He passed through the heavens. He is the son of God. And he says we should hold fast. Set that course. Set your direction on Jesus Christ and nothing else. Sometimes we're all all like a bunch of kids with ADHD or whatever it is. We're going here and there and there. And it's like, no, focus on Christ. You can tell I have ADHD, DDB, whatever. And he says set your direction on Christ and go. Don't worry about what's going on out here. I'm going to focus on Christ. I can rest in him and he'll handle all of the other stuff. No other high priest was called great. No other high priest passed through the heavens. No other high priest is the son of God. Don't turn away. Don't turn back. Hold fast is what he says. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here we're told Jesus was tempted in all points, just like we are. He was a man, he was vulnerable to the temptation of all men, yet he never caved in. He was tempted with everything Satan ever had to throw at him. Everything that you've been tempted with, he's been tempted with. Yet he never once gave in. He stayed sinless. As a result, he is perfectly suited to help you and I with our weaknesses. Now just wrap your mind around this. The Son of God says, I'm going to come to earth. I want to reconcile them. And and, and instead of making it them, say say me. I want to reconcile me to God. He wanted to reconcile you to God. But he wants to relate to your weaknesses, to your struggles, to your issues. He wants to relate to your temptations. So he endures the temptations. The only difference between you and him is he never gave in. But he's felt the same thing that you feel. And you go, well, yeah, he's never felt it as bad as I felt it. He's never, he, he never gave in, so he never felt what I felt. I've met people who seem to doubt Jesus' ability to empathize with them. And they will say the question or they'll say the statement, how can the Son of God really understand the temptation that I face? How does he know what it's like? How does he, he, he hasn't been where I've been He never sinned. How can he understand the lure of darkness and the pull of sin as I'm being tempted and I don't want to give in? How can he understand that? C.S. Lewis said this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. In other words, if the temptation comes and you don't resist it, you don't even know how strong it is. But if you resist it, what happens? What happens? 
It becomes greater and greater and greater and greater. You find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. He faced temptation greater than you ever did because he didn't give in, so he faced every aspect of it, 100% of the force behind temptation. The moment we give in, the temptation's gone. Yet he never gave in. He endured and endured and endured. You find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down. Listen, a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. You think it's going to be stronger in five minutes or stronger than an hour? It might be stronger in an hour. But you'll never know that if you give in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse until we try to fight against it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full aspect of what temptation really is. In other words, what I'm saying is you haven't even experienced the temptation that's available out there. Why? Because you give into it. How do you experience a full temptation? Never give into it. He experienced it all. Why did he do all that? Because he wanted to help you and me in our time of temptation. So he could relate to us, so he could understand us, so that he would endure and feel what we feel. Look at verse 16. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. When? In time of need. When do we come before the throne of grace? In time of need. When do we, how do we come? Boldly. God gives us grace and mercy when we need it most. In other words, he says, I endured that temptation. I didn't give in, but I know how hard it is, and you gave in, so I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. Wow. How, what an amazing Savior. This means you don't have to enter God's presence ashamed. You don't have to feel guilty about the week that you had. You need to repent from it and turn back towards him. But you don't have to be ashamed. You can come to God just the way that you are. See, so often we think, I've got to clean myself up a little bit. Let me just get these few things out of my life and then I'll start going to church or then I'll clean myself up. He says, no, you come to me right the way you are. How can I possibly do that? Because you've got the righteousness of Christ if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. An amazing argument the author of Hebrews is laying out for those who are considering leaving the faith in Jesus Christ and going back to Judaism. He says, they say this, they say there is a rest that's available in the Messiah that you can't find in the Jewish religion. In the Jewish religion, you're stuck doing sacrifices. You're stuck following laws. It's based on your own ability. If you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not based on you. It's based on what he's done. You just have to rest in what he's done. Wow. Same thing applies for us. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we just rest on what the Lord has done for us. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to battle. We just rest. But what if I fall short? That's what grace and mercy is for. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word, I know that we live in a culture where rest is needed. And I know that oftentimes we look all these other places for rest. We fail to see what you're doing in our life because we focus on our circumstances instead of our God. Lord, would you bring us back to that place of rest? If there's been a lack of faith, if there's been a disobedience in our life that's causing that rest to elude us, Lord, may this morning that we repent from that, that we enter back into your rest by putting our faith in your word and our obedience, a demonstration of that faith. 
Lord, as you just knock on our hearts and tell us those areas that need to change, those areas where we might be off, I know the Holy Spirit's faithful to do those things. May we not harden our hearts. Instead, may we repent, put our faith in you, and enter your rest. Lord, may you give us rest. You are a great God. In Jesus' name.